Hey everyone, it's Alan Murabayashi speaking to you live from PhotoShelter headquarters here in New York City. We have a very special episode of I Love Photography today, but before we get to that, uh, you're probably watching us live on YouTube at youtube.com slash photoshelter, or maybe you're checking out the podcast from iTunes by searching for I Love Photography. Uh, you can always hashtag us if you have comments or questions uh, on Twitter with hashtag I Love Photo, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Jacobs. Hey, Sarah, what's going on? Hey, Alan, how are you? So we had a situation this week where one of our uh, peers at Photo Shelter said, you got to check out this guy who's taking photos in St. Louis with the Ferguson thing. Um, and he said, okay, just send David Carson a, a note. And so we did that. Turns out David Carson was like the first guy on the scene taking photos of a lot of the stuff that was going on um, in Ferguson, in, which is a northern suburb of uh, St. Louis. And we're so pleased to have David on the, on the show today. Um, David, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. David's been a uh, staff photographer at the Post-Dispatch since 2000, so many, many years, knowing the, the area, knowing the beat. And I guess we should just start off by saying, what, what are the conditions like there today? I know that the, uh, the highway patrol was called in to take over, and, and it seems like things have calmed down a lot. You know, so last night was the first night when there wasn't any real violence um, between or clashes between the police and the protesters. There was dramatically scaled down. The police officers on Wednesday were there in full riot gear and with armored vehicles, and they had sniper rifles pointed at the uh, crowd. And compare that with Thursday when the state police captain was out there in just his regular uniform shaking people's hands and getting hugs and stuff. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting to see because there would, I think there was a series of events each side did to escalate the situation. Um, you know, the, the protesters view, the, the police's response, uh, with, with riot gear and sniper rifles to be excessive, and uh, that would get them excited, which would cause them to, um, uh, you know, e you know, escalate the situations in, in, in different ways. I mean, there, there was, and, you know, I should say that within the crowd there was an active debate uh, between whether this was going to be a peaceful protest or whether this was going to be um, uh, a more... Uh, um, I don't want to call it well, violent. I guess there were people advocating for violence within the crowd. Um, but there was an active de debate about that, well, what sort of protest this was going to be. And so it was interesting to see that. Um, and for the first few nights, the, the violence went out. Uh, the people advocating violence went out. And for the last, uh, for last night, uh, peace went out. Can you kind of give us a sense? Now, on, on the first night, there was the rioting and the looting, um, which sort of made headlines and... What what was the situation like, and were you concerned for your safety as you were out there taking photos? Um, well, the the first night was was the day that the kid was shot, and he was a man who was eighteen. First night, uh, said it was sort of building and stuff. Uh, um, Gaming into the scene and stuff, but they weren't really having a negative reaction to, to the media at that point. Um, and I should say that there, there, there have been some incidences of uh, 
people lashing out at the media, but it hasn't been too bad. Um, but th that first night, the police came in, and, and the crowd was very upset. Um, and we, that was uh, Saturday night, that, or Saturday that, that, that the person was shot, Mike Brown was shot. And then Sunday night was the night when the looting and the burning of the Quick Trip started. Um, and that night was uh, was a little scary. Yeah. Um, I, I was watching the events unfold on Twitter. Actually, I, I wasn't working on I wasn't working on Saturday or Sunday. And both days, I ended up being pulled in because of events. And uh, I knew I knew that the crowd was excited from being out there on um, on Saturday. And, you know, they they were, they were feeling a lot of uh, you know what had happened. And so I, I knew that there was this vigil at eight o'clock on Sunday that that uh, I just kind of wanted to monitor, and I was kind of monitoring it via Twitter and looking at some of my uh, fellow journalists uh, on Twitter, and um, you you could see it escalating, and you you could just you can uh, one of the local NPR reporters out something about protesters are picking up. Rocks and throwing bottles, and it's like, oh, all right. Um, and then I saw someone said something about tear gas uh, being deployed, and I was like, that's it. I have to have to go in. And I went upstairs, and I my wife was helping my daughter with a bath, and I said, listen, I I, I got to go. And uh, I called my boss, got in the car, uh, called my boss, and said, hey, um, I'm going out there. And he goes, yeah, great idea. And uh, I stopped by the paper, and we have a closet full of. Um, uh, bulletproof vests and helmets and stuff that we have left over from when we covered Afghanistan and Iraq and I just I thought it would be wise to stop there and grab that stuff so I, I grabbed that there and um, you know proceeded to drive to the scene about 20 minutes away and you know by the time you know at, at that time the police have called in a lot of people and uh, the roads were all blocked down so I had to kind of find a back route through it and I knew that that quick trip was where I wanted to be and uh I parked about three blocks away, and I got out. And I put on, uh, I put on my, uh, my my cameras, and my backpack, and a, a bulletproof vest, and a helmet, and a gas mask, and, and I started walking towards the scene. And about one block into my walk, I was like, eh, "This is stupid. I'm I don't need this helmet on. I, I don't need this." And I actually took the helmet off at about one block in. And after I walked another block, and I began to see the pro helmet back on, I, I think I might. yards away uh, from the quick trip. Um, I kind of circled out around in front of it, and it, it wasn't a super organized uh, riot. I mean, there's people milling about, but there, there wasn't a lot of anger and yelling at this point or anything like that. But the store had clearly been looted and had been thoroughly looted at this point. And I was making some pictures with a long lens from the scene, and uh, I remember having a very clear conversation with myself. Well, well, you know where the picture is. You have to, you have to go inside the, you have to go inside the quick trip. And I had to, you know, I had to psych myself up a little bit to do that. And, and I, I looked at the scene and I was like, okay, these people are not with me at all. They're not upset that I'm here. I'm gonna go stand outside the quick trip. And I would actually, amps because in my mind this is a very long period of time. Um, I'd been there about four minutes when I first um, decided to go in, and then I walked up to the front of the store, and I was talking to a gentleman out in front of the store, and I was in front of the store for about two minutes, and 
you know, I shook hands with him and introduced myself and said, you know, look, I, I'm going to go inside the store. Can you watch my back? And he goes, oh yeah, sure, great. Because I, I think you're really vulnerable as a photographer when you're when you're shooting and you can't, you don't have your full peripheral vision. So I actually shot one picture of the inside of the store and looked out of the back of the camera to make sure it was what, what I, and then I followed one of the looters in. Um, and I began shoot, shooting some of that stuff and just kind of taking it in. And I worked my way around to another looter. And he was grabbing a bunch of Pepsi bottles and stuff. And uh, then I turned around and there was this large guy. I mean, could have been an NFL lineman. He was like 6'2 and 350. And he... Uh, he lifts this white shirt he's wearing and shows me his gun and asks me, "What are you doing?" I didn't think about what I said. I just I just responded. Um, I said, uh, "I'm making pictures. I work for the Post Dispatch." He kind of looks at me a little bit longer and doesn't say anything. And I'm like, "You're wearing a mask. Uh, the face is covered. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it." He goes, "Okay," and he goes back to looting the store. And I was like, "Oh my god." Um. I made a few pictures of him then. Uh, he's, he's standing there. He's holding some five-hour energy lemon flame. Did that sorry, cross Alan, your what? mind when you when you went into the store? Were you thinking about I can't capture faces? This could be subpoena. This did that did that cross your mind at all, or were you just making pictures? You know, I I was just making pictures. You know, it, it, I I wasn't. Um, some of the people had their faces covered up. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 at the moment, I had, and I, I don't know how you pre-think out a response to that. People have told me to look at this. Um, they're like, well, he didn't have a clip in his gun. Well, yeah, I didn't look at the profile. And, um, you know, so he may, he, he may not have had a clip in the gun, I don't know if he had a round in the chamber. I wasn't going to challenge him on it. Um, but I was in the store for less than two minutes. Um, I, you know, I got into the store. I got the pictures I felt like I needed. And I got 200 yards away and sat down on paper. And I actually um, opened up my laptop and chose 15 photos and just FTP'd them back. So that was uh, that was an intense situation. I remember, you know, I think if you go back and you look at my Twitter timeline, I had tweeted... Honestly, a little scared, and uh, you know, I, it, it was it was hectic. So, um, a lot has been written about the police clamping down on the media, telling people to turn off their cameras. Did you encounter police who were being hostile to you? Part. Did you encounter police who were being hostile to you as a journalist? You know, it was funny. I had the full. I'm sorry, did I encounter police that were hostile to me in what? As a journalist? Taking photos? So I had the I had the full range of experience with police there that night. I'm sorry, Alan, it's coming over really broken up. So I had the full range of experience there with uh, police that night. I had some police officers who were and, you know, were concerned for my well-being, and I had some other police officers who uh, didn't want me didn't want me there and uh, see the scene. Um, I avoided a couple of those situations. I was able to linger for about an hour or longer after my first encounter, being told to leave, um, and then eventually I ran into a scene with 
county lieutenant who was like, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm doing my job. And he goes, this is not your job. I was like, this this is my job. Um, and we had a short debate about that, and which I lost. And uh, he uh, asked me where my car was, and I said, it's back in the neighborhood where you just drove over. Took me out to the command center, and then actually drove me by car to a, a police station about five miles away. For about two minutes, I thought maybe I was going to be under arrest, but I wasn't. So um, I had one of my other folk uh, photographers come pick me up, and uh, uh, you know, it, you know, I just went went home and started photos. What What do you think the role of photojournalist is in, in a situation like this? Well, you know, this is a historic thing in St. Louis. We've, we've not had anything like this before, so I, I think our role is to provide the visual record of it. Um, I, you know, I, I the work, um, you know, and document the police do, you know, doing what they're doing. I understand that they are concerned for my safety, but I've made a pretty conscious choice of showing up there and, and being there for that. Um, and, you know, I one of the other things I was saying with this uh, police lieutenant was, I said, look, you know, I'm better than some of your guys here. I actually have a hard helmet on and I have a gas mask. About half your guys don't have either of that piece. I'm, I'm good. You don't have to worry about me. I'll, I will stay out of the way and I will protect myself first. Um, he didn't. He didn't care care about that. So, you know, I you're gonna lose the cops. In reality, the cops have all the power in that. And you're gonna lose the debate with them ten times out of ten. Is there any particular issue that you think the media hasn't done a good job in covering the situation in Ferguson? No, I, I mean I I think I'm really proud of the job that. Uh, my coworkers and I have done in, in covering this event. I think we've we've provided a lot of depth uh, uh, of coverage, not not just the bad things, but the, you know the good things that are also going on here. There's one of our photographers, Lori Scrivan, um, pictures of people coming out to clean up after the riots and stuff. Uh, see people taking uh, taking an interest in their community and wanting you know wanting to you know show their community in a good light. Um, so that that was that was interesting. Um, this is kind of a, a maybe a touchy question. A lot had been said about the police showing up in full riot gear with the rifles, and how just the mere appearance of that militariza militarization put people on edge. You on the first night decided to go to the locker and pull out the flak jacket and the helmet and and roll in there um, in all of that gear. Did it cross your mind that you could also... I'm sorry, me and the first night I decided to wear... You, you were wearing the uh, the gear as well. Did you think that that would potentially escalate the relations with people? I'm, I'm sorry, Alan. It came across all garbled. Did you think that wearing riot gear would uh, escalate the tension between the people you were coming in contact with? You know... That's a good question. Um, I was concerned about that. I, I it, it was clearly own protection. Um, you know, it, some 
you know, you you do look a little bit like a police officer. You stand out, but I was going to stand out in that crowd regardless. You know, I was going to have two cameras on me, and I was going to be a white guy. I I saw two other uh, white guys there that night. Um, you know, I, I any any idea that I was going to blend into this crowd noticed is is wrong. So, you know, wearing some protective equipment. I. When I really believe it was wise to wear that protective equipment, I had a first set of pictures. I had gone back up and started making some pictures of the gathering police force, and um, I'd interviewed this pastor, and um, the someone came running up the street saying, "There's, there's," I was like, oh, I, "I should go get a picture of that too." And so I walked back down the street to the Quick Trip. And uh, it was about 100 yards away from the quick trip. I didn't go in the quick trip this time. I didn't want to be in there when they were setting it on fire. But now, by this time, this is about an hour later after I made the first set of pictures, there was two very large groups of people that were standing um, 90 paces away from me. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about 100 yards at the front door, or maybe a little less than that to the front door of the quick trip. Uh, people that, that had gathered. He's taking pictures. Go get him. Kick his ass. And I was like, right. so I, I, I turned and I started running. Um, I should uh, qualify that with the statement that I'm not a particularly fast runner as it is, and when I'm wearing a bulletproof vest and a helmet and two cameras and a backpack, I'm fleet of foot, so so um, I lost the foot. I lost the quarter, the uh, quarter mile foot race back to the police officers. Um, the guy uh, caught up to me about hundred about a hundred yards from the police line, hundred and fifty yards from the police line. He just he whacked me in the side of the head. I don't know if he punched me or what, but I had a, I had the helmet on. That didn't actually the force of his blow. Um, knocked me over, or if I was just so off balance from being running and being hit in the head like that that I fell, but I went to the ground pretty hard. I remember seeing the 16 to 35 shatter on the ground and sort of splay across, and I rolled a couple times, um, and just as I rolled back up to get myself sort of set, this guy was coming back in to kick me. Um, I then kicked him back um, and swung a Mark IV, the lens on it, uh, at which time the, the pastor, who had done a video interview with a short time earlier, had came in and said, stop, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, which gave me enough time to kind of get back on my feet and put some more space between us, and he, he was also backing off at that point. Um, so, you know, I think it was a good decision of my, on my part to wear the riot gear. Um, also, there were numerous shots fired, uh, uh, both... Uh, as the looting was going on, you were hearing gunshots was burning. Uh, as later as, as the quick trip was burning, uh, someone fired shots at us. They were within 50 yards when they fired at us. Um, so again, I was glad I had every piece of protective equipment on that night. When David, when you were debating going into the gas station, what was that conversation like in your head? What were you weighing? I'm sorry, sorry, can you repeat the audio here? It's coming across very uh, uh, digitized. 
When when you were debating going into the gas station, what was the conversation like in your head? What were you weighing to figure out if you needed to go in or not? Well, I, I wait. I, I I was looking on the back of the. I was looking on the back of the camera, and I saw, you know, I, I had some okay stuff. Um, I was looking at the my presence here, and and I wasn't really being noticed, even though I was wearing all this stuff. I, no one was really paying attention to me. Um, paying attention to me, it was, it was almost like people were moving away from me. Um, it was almost like as I moved forward, people sort of walked out and around me and stuff as well. And so, like, I didn't feel like anyone was coming to confront me. I knew I was being noticed now a little bit more. But when I was outside there, I was outside there for about two minutes. I talked to this guy, and things were okay, and people were coming and going from the store, and I was making some. And then I, I felt like, you know, it was just a decision I made it. I was I, thought I was trying to be cautious and look to see what what I thought my dangers were going to be, but then uh, I um, just decided to go to go in. Um, fortunately, it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately for everybody, and you got the shot, so that's great. Yeah, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's just fascinating, uh, and we appreciate all the the great photography that's coming out of St. Louis. Thanks. I, I think that uh, some of my coworker Robert Cohen made a, a really iconic picture from the third night there of a, a tear gas canister back with a uh, American flag shirt on. It's just, it's an awesome picture. But I think the reporters have done a great job, and I'm I'm proud of our entire staff. Thank you. We're gonna keep watching what's happening. That great. was David Carson uh, over in St. Louis. Uh, you can follow him on, on Twitter, at PDPJ. Some really, really great stuff uh, coming over his Twitter feed. Pretty, uh, pretty intense stuff, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. Lots, lots to talk about. I know we were having a little audio difficulty there, but this, the story is pretty riveting, um, whatever the case may be. That was pretty uh, amazing to hear it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just don't know how you how you roll into a quickie mart and <laughs> you know yeah. decide that you want to go take pictures. It's just kind of crazy. I know his answer. He's just like I, you know, I was looking at the back of my camera. I had to go get a better shot. Basically, you know, it's I mean, it's wild. So he was talking about what he considered to be sort of the iconic photo of uh, the situation there in Ferguson. Um, this is the photo here on the left. So it's a guy taking that tear gas canister with the American flag shirt, throwing it. I, I had initially thought that was a Molotov cocktail. I thought it was like a yeah. homemade bomb. It had been reported as that, but yeah. then got corrected. Yeah. So this is a situation on uh, the Philadelphia Daily News um, about how they, over social media, on Twitter, they were indicating that they wanted the left to be the cover uh, for the next day. And when people saw that, they started saying, are you sure you want to run that? Implication being that it, it, it sort of put the onus of the violence on the protesters. Um, and there were some really, really interesting comments uh, 
because there was a back and forth between the editor and some of the people who were who were commenting on Twitter, and uh, the editor said, "Well, listen, when you open up the story and you read it, we're actually very we're actually very." Uh, uh, sympathetic to what the protesters are going to and the responder said yeah but it's like a huge photo with 10 point type no one's gonna see that everyone's visceral reaction is gonna be those those black thugs are causing trouble there in St. Louis and so they said you know what that's totally valid and they switched the cover to what you see on the right which is a woman peacefully protesting with sort of this phalanx of militarized SWAT team behind her um, vastly different. Vastly pictures. different. <laughs> you know, and it brings up that whole conversation of of visual literacy, what that means, and how people respond to photos. Um, and so I just thought, well, first of all, you know, kudos to the editors for for making what I think was a good call. Kudos to the readership for also standing up and and having that visual literacy to say, hey, this is giving the wrong the wrong idea. Um, yeah. It, I mean, people were debating, well, did you only change it because of social media? But even if that's the case, I think that's fine that they did. Um, but I, I do feel like the photo editors, you know, if they read the story, if the story is sympathetic to the protesters, then, you know, did the photo editors not take that in and choose the correct image at first? I feel like, you know, as a photo editor, it's your responsibility to understand how the public is going to react and yeah. also to represent the words in the story and I feel like that first cover absolutely they, they did neither of those things yeah. so I'm really happy they changed it it is it is one hell of a shot though it, it you're right it's an it's an incredible it's photo uh, over on the New York Times uh, uh, th there's been a comparison of the civil rights era photos along with some of the Ferguson images that have emerged um, and really kind of startling that you know, 50 years later, you're basically seeing the same scene. It's just unbelievable. Um, th this photo uh, on the left there, a man with his hands raised and a SWAT team rolling in with machine guns trained on him, you know, three, four guys trained on him. Uh, and then this one, which I know is a little bit harder to see, but uh, 1963 on the right, four policemen with... Uh, rifles leaning against their car and then on the left uh, this past week same line of cops um, and a lot of photographers uh, Danny Leone uh, one of the photographers from the 60s saying I just it doesn't it didn't look like America it looked like Soweto I'm referring to the South African township um, just, just you know this whole week Sarah has really kind of blown my mind I just it's yeah. so hard to like wrap your head around that this is happening in the US in 2014. Yeah, it's tragic. Just don't I don't even know what to say. Uh, I ended up writing uh, a piece on the Photo Shelter blog um, entitled Photography Authority and Race and kind of looking at three three situations um, in the past couple weeks where photography played a huge role in capturing uh, misbehavior if you will of authority, in this case um, the police. Uh, and you know it's interesting to sort of research the article and look historically uh, what had go gone on and just reading a lot of the articles 
uh, written about these events. Eric Gardner in Staten Island. There was a police cop, a policeman in New Jersey who said uh, a white photographer, a white, a white guy who went to a municipal building to get an open records act because he had some questions about an animal shelter was told to stop taking photos by this cop, Richard Racine, and the cop said, you don't have a right because Obama has decimated the friggin' Constitution. I, it just blows my mind. Luckily, that situation didn't get violent at, at all. Yeah, thank but God. But just ridiculous. And, and that guy even, he like retired immediately after that video was released. Yeah, and then he went on radio and he said he was just joking. Oh, right, just, of you course. Know, it's just hard to, hard to believe. And then finally in Ferguson, we have these images. Here's one by Scott Olson of Getty Images. Uh, journalist Ryan Riley from the Huff Huffington Post was arrested after taking a photo of McDonald's. Um, and then some of the images that we've seen, this, this was great too. So a 17-year-old started a hashtag called If They Gun Me Down and used a diptych of him with the saxophone and him in a rap video for a math class. A rap video for a math class. And he challenged our notions of how a black youth would be portrayed in a situation like what happened there in Ferguson and he said they would probably pick, the media would probably pick the one on the left reinforcing stereotypes of black teens, right? Instead of saying, hey, we're actually or we actually do a lot of things like a lot of teens do. Sometimes we try to act tough and sometimes we're, we're representing the United States. Uh, and and that was sort of in reaction to this photo of Michael Brown kind of flashing a peace sign, uh, which which some people were saying was a gang sign. Now, it, it turns out today, Sarah, that, that they found a security video of him allegedly stealing uh, some stuff from a convenience mart on the same day that he was shot dead. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the guy was necessarily an angel, but... Again, the, the, the punishment for theft should not be death, is what I'm saying. And teens, teens are teens, you know? Teens do stupid stuff. They don't, their brains aren't fully <laughs> formed. We know this from science. They have poor decision-making. They have uh, a poor understanding of consequences until they fully mature. And, and so it's just tragic that teens can no longer be teens. Um, and then you see, you know, the police tear-gassing Al Jazeera and dismantling their cameras. And then this photo just, just incensed me. Here's a, here's a guy with no shirt on. He's clearly unarmed. His back is to the police, and there's a laser sight on him. And I just can't tell you, you know, how important these photos are to the understanding of the situation in Ferguson and also understanding the overreach by the police. There's no reason for anyone to train a laser sight on this guy. There's just no reason. No reason. So speaking about the power of photography then, uh, an interesting piece on Slate that was just published. Um, Chris Hondros, who was killed in, the, in, in Libya um, by a mortar, uh, was in Iraq. He was an embedded, embedded photographer in Iraq. And he was at a checkpoint and at that checkpoint, the soldiers fired on a car, killing the, the, the mom and dad. And in the back, they found traumatized kids. Um, and the, the girl was pulled out of the car in hysterics. And Chris 
took this photo. And this is a photo that I talk about a lot because when I saw Chris speak at the Eddie Adams workshop probably about five or six years ago, he showed the sequence of images um, that got to this image. And, and nothing before this image was particularly great. And then you got to this image and you're like, oh my god. And this was a very widely circulated and award-winning photo. Um, and this piece on, uh, piece on Slate talks about how Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, I might be butchering his title, actually saw this photo and, and talked to Chris about the photo. And as a result of that photo, um, the, the rules regarding engagement at checkpoints was changed. So it's interesting, you know, uh, it, it's not the newspaper age anymore. It is the, the Twitter age, the digital age, the Instagram age, and we've, we're inundated by so many photos, but it's, it's good to see that photos can still spur a discussion and in some cases change policy. Change. Changed policy as in it was less, more regulated, or how? It was more regulated. The, so the rules of engagement got more strict for soldiers not being able to just randomly fire into a car. Right. Um, okay. Uh, and so with all of this going on, uh, the NYPD had to release a memo reminding cops that anyone can be filmed while on duty. They are public servants. So a memo went out, and then the next day, <laughs> a uh, a candidate for governor was arrested on the platform of the subway for taking photos. I just, I, I just, I can't understand what's going on. Wow. It's just ludicrous, ludicrous. Um, and so we want to remind you of this site in case you've never seen it. Photographyisnotacrime.com, PNAC, uh, a compilation. So this, this uh, was started by a photographer who had been arrested on, on bogus charges for taking photos. Uh, and it started as sort of his documenting that, that process and, and what he was going through. And then it became sort of a, a clearinghouse for this type of information where police are overreaching their authority and confiscating cameras and deleting cards uh, and whatnot. And none of that is legal. It's against federal laws to confiscate a camera when someone is taking a photo in a public space or taking photos of police officers or soldiers, etc., in a public space. So that's a great resource. Um, and I think that's all we're going to talk about for for Ferguson and police overreach. I mean, it's just a huge conversation, Sarah. I, I feel a little bit passionate about it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing happened this week which was pretty tragic. Um, the actor-comedian Robin Williams passed away. Uh, killed himself, hung himself, and then yesterday it was revealed that he had early onset Parkinson's. Um, hadn't, was, was sober. You know, there's speculation that, oh, maybe he fell off the wagon and started doing drugs and alcohol again, and his wife says, no, he was sober. He he was just diagnosed with Parkinson's, and I think that that kind of weighed heavily on his mind. Obviously, if you've been anywhere near social media or mass media, you've seen all the tributes come in to Robin Williams. This was an interesting one. Uh, G.J. McCarthy, who's a photographer at the Dallas uh, News, um, put together a, a tribute to Robin Williams as seen by press glossies. So whenever a movie comes out, they have all of the, uh, the behind-the-scenes 
photos. And he decided to put together a little gallery of these images to kind of show Robin's career through these movies, these movie stills. Um, and it's weird to see how young he was and how, you know, all these amazing actors that he worked with. Um, just a really, really nice tribute, I thought. There, there have been some wonderful photos. The cover of Time has got a wonderful photo of Robin Williams. Um, but this was a nice, poignant way to kind of show him doing what he loved uh, and, and throughout the years in some of these iconic movies that we've seen. And, and not all of the movies were good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, Sarah, I, I shed a couple tears. Oh, it yeah. I, I went home and watched Mrs. Doubtfire. Yep. Immediately. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> you know, this this is a guy whose whose uh, filmography and resume literally covered like three decades, four decades. So it doesn't really matter. Like if you you if you were born anywhere from probably like 1930 on, you've probably <laughs> seen Robin Williams act in some form or fashion. Yeah, he touched so many different generations. I yeah. mean, I'm looking through these and I don't even recognize. All yeah. the movies he was in. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting to see that stuff. Another guy, man, oh man, there's just so much going on. Uh, you might remember this guy, Edward Snowden, who released a trove of national security secrets, um, hailed by some uh, as being the ultimate whistleblower, hailed by others as being a traitor. Uh, he's holed up in Russia, and Wired magazine hired Platon was a great portraitist uh, to go photograph Snowden, um, which is it's just interesting to see because uh, the, uh, Platon had formerly photographed Putin in Russia, and he tells a story about how nervous he was, and he had to show up, you know, like six hours early, um, and so now you see Snowden grasp, grasping the flag. Which is weird because Platon did a photo of Pam Anderson covering herself with a flag, and then I think back to the Putin <laughs> image, and then you get this weird amalgamation into this one image, and it's just kind of it's just kind of strange to see. I wonder where he shot these, like where he put him. You know, like yeah. you know, it's not like he had a studio there or anything, and where he's hiding. Exactly. Where, where is he hiding? Where is he hiding? It's just so interesting to see all of this stuff. Let's shift gears into something slightly <laughs> happier. I, I don't know that this is happier, but it, it was funny. Uh, Dan Havlick, who is now the editor of Shutterbug magazine, uh, published this little piece, and it's a YouTube video. You should check it out. All the links, by the way, are available on our blog, blog.photoshelter.com. This little girl uh, deleted a photo accidentally off of her digital camera. Um, and it's like her whole world ended. Her, yeah. <laughs> She's pretty upset uh, that a photo of some guy named Uncle Dave was deleted. Um, and her dad is asking her to explain what it means, and she says it's gone forever, which I thought was actually pretty prescient for a four-year-old, because usually I think at four you don't really understand the concept of death, but I guess you understand the concept of deletion. Deletion. For some reason, it's more tangible to you. <laughs> right. She's uh, probably been playing with iPads since she was two. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So, so she's pleading with Uncle Dave to please send her another photo, and it's just kind of a heartwarming 
photo. Although, you know, my only complaint about it is clearly she had deleted the photo and then the dad turned the camera on and basically put her through the whole emotional gamut again to, to, to relive the moment of deletion. Oh, no. Uncle Dave, send her the photo yeah, soon. Yeah, Uncle Dave, please. <laughs> um, Kim, Kim Kardashian, whatever you want to say about Kim Kardashian, you can't deny that she is a brilliant self-promoter. Absolutely. The, so, Sarah, I don't know if you That's... know, but she has a also a, an app, a game app. Yes. Kim Kardashian app. And some uh, analysts have speculated that that app, which has sort of taken over Candy Crush and Candy Saga and all these other like app games, uh, could generate $200 million a year. Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian, who's famous for nothing. Well, but at any rate... That's her talent, is being famous talent. for nothing. Yeah. Now she's Mrs. Kanye West. She's still Kim Kardashian, and, and to prove that, here is a book... 352 pages of selfies called Selfish, which I think is a brilliant title. Now, I don't know if she's the one that came up with it, but there's a, there's a play on words there. You know, like selfie being like selfie-ish, but also selfish because it's all selfies of her. I, I, I just thought it was incredibly witty, and, and I love a good pun. Um, <laughs> but this is available for pre-order. Uh, hats off to Kim. I I think this is a great idea, and you know every other pop star is like, why didn't I think? Why of didn't this? I think of that? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Bieber is fuming right now. Oh gosh, you know he is. Oh. So anyway, I you know maybe I'll 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 order it, or maybe I'll just follow her on Instagram and save the the twenty bucks. Yeah, that might be smart. Um, in sadder selfie news, a Polish couple fell off a cliff and died while taking selfies. This is unbelievable. You know... They both fell. They both fell. And I, I've mentioned this before, Sarah, which is, like, people crossing the street or walking on the sidewalk, obviously people, a lot of people walk in New York, and the number of people I see, myself included, who are so oblivious the moment they look at the phone, it's like you lose all peripheral vision, you lose all sense of where you are in the world. Um, and so it's not surprising that given the number of selfies that are taken every day, that somebody fell off a cliff. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but you got to be careful when you're using your phone. <laughs> I know. I mean, there's so many campaigns against you know, texting and driving. Yeah. But, uh, gosh, do we need awareness campaigns for texting and just being out in the world? Or, I think you know? selfies on a cliff might need its own PSA. I, it, it, well, clearly it might. This is tragic. I mean, and also, you know, vines, it freaks me out how many vines are made while people are driving in their car. Oh, gosh. You yeah. know? <laughs> Something's going to happen. Yeah, that's that's even more dangerous than walking and texting. We, you know, we 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 say it almost every week, but it's like you can't you can't go by in a week without having some some news item about a selfie. No, it's true. And this is the first one where it's been deaf. So let's go back to happy selfies, guys. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this isn't about selfies. This is about self-portraits. I came across this work by Jen Davis, who is a Yale MFA graduate on Flack Photo, which is a great resource. Jen Davis um, started documenting herself kind of on a lark, I think it was. She was at the beach and took a self-portrait, and 
she's an overweight gal, and she was wearing a big black one-piece, and behind her you see a, a guy and a girl, um, like rail-thin guy and a girl, kind of just in the background. And nobody's really aware of each other, but it kind of uh, made her eyes open a little bit. Um, so for the past 11 years, she's been taking these self-portraits, um, and some of the books... Uh, some of the photos from her book, Looking and Look, uh, a project called Looking and Looking, were published on Flack Photo, um, and I just thought they were beautiful. This one really reminded me of kind of a Vermeer painting or, uh, you know, Chiascuro. I'm so bad with art terms. Um, kind of Flemish light and dark painting. But yeah, some really nice photo. So here is the image that I was talking about previously. I can't believe she's been doing this for 11 years. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, her sense of light is really nice. It's these beautiful, quiet moments just with herself, very intimate. These are great. And so she ended up having some sort of either gastric bypass or some sort of surgery um, to help her lose weight. So you see her being quite obese in some of these photos, and, and toward the end of the series, she's she's actually looking quite thin in some of the photos. Um so it's just interesting to see this, and I, obviously a lot of women struggle with, with weight, um, and we've seen similar series before. I just thought this was very, very artfully done. Um, and this to me, you know, last week we saw the images of the woman who took the self-portrait uh, topless for mm -hmm. her entire life. Mm -hmm. These are such interesting projects to me where I, I think sort of the longitudinal approach to self-portrait, you know, in a, in a very, like, in a pop culture way, you can look at Noah Kalina, uh, and in an artful way, you can look at someone like Jen Davis and really see, like, the exploration of self that goes on as a result of these photos. So, self, selfie away. <laughs> Just don't fall off a cliff. Ooh. Um, Sarah, you know how I feel about Wearing sunscreen. Yes. Every time you go on vacation, what do I tell you? What's the first thing I tell you? You better bring the sunscreen. Wear the sunscreen. You're fair, you're fair skin. And actually, I tell that to all my friends who are going to any sort of tropical climate. So artist Tom Leverett used a, a, a UV camera. He's not the first person who, who, who's done this. And, and actually, dermatologists have similar systems in their uh, offices. But he put together a, a piece called How the Sun Sees You, um, and he set up a camera in a park and a, and a video monitor so people could see themselves under this UV filter to show how much sun damage was there. So a really interesting piece, and at the end, he says everyone's born essentially with really nice skin, and he shows kids, and they have none of these blemishes that you see under the UV light. Oh, wow. I wouldn't want to have this done, would you? <laughs> No, I wouldn't want to have this. I mean, I'm slightly curious. Uh -huh. Now, for those of you who are curious about this, you can actually kind of simulate this by using a blue filter in Photoshop or over your camera. It'll really pull out a lot of these uh, lower, longer wavelength features in your face. Oh, wow. So, you know, you can try it. But, hey, I, you know, wear, wear some sunscreen. I wear sunscreen every day. It's in my facial lotion. You should just do it, okay? Okay. <laughs> that's all I want to say. So that's kind of geary, so we thought we'd, we'd talk about gear. Brian Smith, who's a friend of Photo Shelter, 
updated his pho photography gear card. You know, when you're a uh, prominent photographer, it doesn't matter how good your photos are. People always want to know what gear you're using, for better or for worse. Absolutely. That is always one of my first questions when I'm talking to photographers about their work. Oh, and what you, you know, what do you use to shoot this with? Yeah, and you're and you're not like a, a dummy, Sarah. You're like a great photographer and you know that it's not the camera, but it, but you kind of yeah, you're kind of curious, right? You're like that photo's so good, they can't possibly use be using the same camera as me. <laughs> right, exactly. So Brian is a is a Sony artisan. He obviously has a lot of Sony gear. He also has his lighting kit up there. Um, you know, it's interesting talking to Brian though because you know he has all this great gear, but his walk around camera is a is a a Sony RX100, and he gets some great photos off of that as well. Mm-hmm. Just sort of proves the point that if you're a good photographer, it doesn't matter what you're shooting with. Exactly. You can give him a cardboard box, and he'd probably take a better photo than we can. <laughs> yeah, pinhole camera. There pinhole you go. Pinhole camera. Yeah. <laughs> That's at BrianSmith.com/gear, and he breaks it down into all these different categories and some great stuff. Um, with all of this stuff going on between Ferguson and the police and all this kind of stuff, we kind of lost track of Gaza. I mean, in part because there's there's been off and on ceasefires that have been happening. Um, but here's some amazing uh, photography from Marco Longari in Gaza um, on the Italian Post. And, you know, I was going through this stuff. It, it's hard to understand the amount of destruction that's going on. I've never been to Gaza. I've been to Israel before. I've never been to Gaza. I've been to St. Louis. I've never been to Ferguson. You know, you see some of these photos um, and you can't tell whether it's a block or two blocks or three blocks. In this case, you can tell that there's a lot of destruction in Gaza. Here's unexploded ordnance. Look at this building. Wow, this image is amazing with the yeah. spotted cow next to the yeah, hard, yeah. hard building. It's pretty incredible. So Marco is just just really doing a great job capturing this stuff. You know, getting not only the destruction, but getting the look on people's faces. Look at this building riddled with shells. Um, and again, you know, neither side is acting well. And all we're seeing is civilian, civilians being harmed as a result of all, all of the action on both sides. Um, so Marco, keep doing what you're doing, man. You're just you're a great job. Uh, over on the Time Lightbox, David Chancellor's powerful photos of conservation efforts, and there's a whole slew of photos, but I was just looking at this one, and it's an elephant hung upside down. Elephants killed for their tusks by poachers because ivory, African ivory, is banned in many, many countries. Um, but it's just crazy to see an image of this like huge, huge animal just dead and lifted by its feet on a crane. It almost looks like a lynching photo in some ways. Mm. Since we're yeah. on the civil rights theme, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I'm glad David's capturing this. He, same with Amy Vitale has yeah. also been working on a similar project. You know, where she's raised funds to document the poaching that's going on also in Kenya. So I'm glad that there's multiple eyes on this. It's really sad. Photography continues to play a huge role, and, and there's a lot of photography to look at, but I think that there's photography for every little, every little niche, which is great. Um, hopefully it'll 
It'll open people's wallets up. I mean, we've seen that with the with the ice bucket challenge. Um, you know, these these visual things help people uh, raise awareness. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tavi Gevinson, the style rookie, rookie.com. Oh yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know Tavi, she was a 13-year-old fashion blogger who blew up and was invited to all these shows, but turns out Tavi uh, is a very, very articulate, intelligent young lady who also has done acting for a long time, and so now she's starting to appear uh, in theater, and she was in a movie, um, and here is a little piece in New York Mag shot by Martin Scheller. We love Martin Scheller. We do. Um, so him and Tavi together. Yeah, it's like, look at this. She looks incredible. She looks incredible. <laughs> now, the one piece, and this is lovely, you rarely see her smile, so I thought this was a great photo. Um, but this photo was the one that sort of made me say, oh, this is interesting, because Martin Scheller is known for the Kinoflow lighting pattern, where these you know four-foot-long fluorescent Kinoflows give people the cat eye look. Where they almost are going to cry because it's so painfully bright. Oh, yeah, and so bright. I, I rented some Kino flows just to see what it was like. It's so bright in your eyes. Um, but here's a case where he's actually using a beauty dish and a reflector. That's what I think I'm seeing in the in her eyes. Yeah. He and toned it down a little bit. He toned it down. It's a much softer, nicer photo, if you will. Yeah. So I don't know if it was just because it's Tavi or he's changing up the style. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what his future portraits are like. I, I kind of hope that he's not changing it up. Yeah, because that's kind of his thing. He owns that's that. His, that's his thing, exactly. Maybe it was just with Tavi. Maybe also, just... I mean, personally, I, I love Tavi. I wish that Style Rookie had existed when I was a teen. Yeah. Her, her blog, because she's just so real. She it's, keeps it real. She keeps it real. You know, it's teenagers writing for teenagers. It's not like... You know, Seventeen magazine, where it's these right, thirty-year-olds. Year old. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm him. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> she's gonna do big things here in New York. Yeah, we look forward to it. Secret. That's my secret girl crush. Yes. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> we're we're ending today on. Uh, I, I I wouldn't necessarily say it's a happy note, but in some ways, it's happy. You know, I, ha I, ha I have always held sort of mixed feelings for Humans of New York. Um, and I think in part because I never thought the photos were that <laughs> good. Yeah. You know, Brandon, God bless Brandon, he's, he goes out there every day and he takes photos and he gets these stories and he posts them on the blog and his Facebook's got eight, almost nine million followers, which is more than the population of New York, incidentally. New York City, rather. Um, but as a result of all of that, he's been hired for different gigs. And the UN uh, has him flying out on world tour, or at least part of their UN world tour. And he's in Iraq, um, or he, he was in Iraq in this past week. And I gained some respect for the guy. i gotta, I got to be honest. Um, because what I realized is he's a great storyteller. And the, the stories, even if they're highly edited... Which, which we know they, they are. are because Peter Balderson from our office was in Honey and he's like, that's not what I said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, we have a first-hand account. We have a first-hand account that he kind of, he, he alters context through the editing of the interview. But he's not a journalist. He's, 
himself, and if he gets people interested in other people, and in this case Iraqis, then more power to him. Then he's then he's doing a good job as a storyteller, not hmm. as a journalist. I, I don't know. I might have to disagree on this one. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I mean, I I was fine with Honey in New York. I'm also fine with him shooting, you know, the Met Gala for yeah. Vogue. That's yeah. also fine. But, I mean, when he announced this trip, he literally said the point of this trip is not to say anything about the world, you know, but rather listen to stories, which I totally get, you know. But, I mean, I honestly, I don't really have an interest in following a photographer that doesn't have anything to say about the world. And if I want to get an unbiased look at what's happening, I'm mm -hmm. going to go to a respected photojournalist. I'd rather see Tyler Hicks there than Honey. That's kind of my So you're saying he because he sort of lacks an artist statement about what he's doing and why he's doing it, you don't you don't dig him as much. Yeah, basically. Plus the photography isn't that good. Exactly. yeah, that especially that. I mean the guy's been doing this for like f over four years now and yet he's still taking the same exact photo. I don't like I don't know. Why hasn't yeah, he gotten better? Well, let me let me tell you what I think is happening. It's because you know, the guy moved to New York, and I don't remember the exact sequence, but he, he moved to New York and he was basically unemployed. And he, and he, you know, he got the camera out and he told his mom, I'm going to go take this, these photos. And the mom's like, you better, get a, you better get a freaking job, Brandon. And he goes out and takes the photos and he starts posting them, and they accidentally got really popular. I don't think he really thought that this was going to be his profession. Mm -hmm. Which, and, and therefore... I don't even know whether he wanted to be a photographer in the first place. So, so now, all of these things that that like an artist would go through, like Jen Davis, she has a she has an artist statement. She went to Yale. She got an MS Bay. She understands like the the mentality of an artist. Right. Honey was like a bonds trader in Chicago or something <laughs> like that. Right. Exactly. But that. But now that you're getting hired, you know you got to really think about what am I putting out there. It's getting thousands of likes every time I post one photo. Yeah. The guy's got to take a step back and be like, what am I trying to say? Rather than blatantly just, I'm not trying to say anything. We're just going to edit the crap out of whatever this person told me and get a bunch of likes. Okay, I, I will agree with that. It would be nice to see a little bit of evolution as an artist out of Humans of New York. Yeah, and the photography. He is masterful <laughs> at pulling on the emotional heartstrings of his audience. Right? That is that That's is true. Where, there should be a there should be a a Hallmark Humans of New York series of <laughs> cards where it's like, hey, sorry I missed your birthday, but here's a quote from a guy on the street who hasn't celebrated his birthday for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. If you want to feel good, go buy a Hallmark card or go to Facebook. Yeah, and Humans look at Tony's feed. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Well, that not only was this probably the longest show we've ever had, that was jam-packed with stuff. Um, man, there's a lot of like heavy, heavy stuff going on in photography. A lot of stuff. Next week, I'm going to try to bring some fun stuff. Bring some levity to the party next week. Okay. That sounds good. Thank you for the audience. Thank you to David Carson for like a, a, a crazy insider's view of what's going on in Ferguson. A lot of insight. Um, we apologize for some of the audio trouble. Hopefully uh, in the recording that will come out. If not, we'll follow up with David um, via email and, and get his words down on paper. Um, but 
Great show, Sarah. Uh, so for Sarah Jacobs, this is Alan Murabayashi signing off. Join us next week for I Love Photography. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.